Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, the classic story from Edna Ferber that inspired one of the greatest American musicals. This is the eighth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. You can find the entire series online at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Edna Ferber's Showboat. Chapter 17 The knell had sounded for the red brick house with the lions guarding its portals. The Chicago soot hung like a pall over it. The front steps sagged. Even the stone lions had a mangy look. The lemon water sunshine of a Chicago winter day despoiled the dwelling of any sinister exterior aspect. That light, filtering through the lake mist, gave to the house front the look of a pockmarked, wrinkled, and evil old hag who squats in the marketplace with her face to the sun and thinks of her purple past and does not regret it. It was half past one. Magnolia Ravenel had figured this out nicely. That part of Clark Street would be astir by now. As she approached the house on Clark, near Polk, her courage had momentarily failed her, and she had passed it hurriedly. She had walked a block south, wretchedly, but the feel of the bills in her bag gave her new resolve. She opened the handbag to look at them, turned, and walked swiftly back to the house. She rang the bell this time, firmly, demandingly, stood looking down at its clean, scrubbed doorstep and tried to ignore the prickling sensation that ran up and down her spine and the weak and trembling feeling in her legs. The people passing by could see her. She was knocking at Hetty Chilson's notorious door, and the people passing by could see her, Magnolia Ravenel. Well, what of it? Don't be silly. She rang again. The door was opened by a man in a clean, starched white housecoat. Magnolia did not know why the sight of this rather sad-eyed-looking man should have reassured her, but it did. She knew exactly what she wanted to say. "'My name is Mrs. Ravenel. I want to speak to Hetty Chilson.' "'Miss Chilson is busy, ma'am,' he said, as though repeating a lesson. "'Still,' Something about the pale, well-dressed, earnest woman evidently impressed him. Of late, when he opened the door, there had been frequent surprises for him in the shape of similar earnest and well-dressed young women who, when you refused them admittance, flashed an official-looking badge, whipped out notebook and pencil, and insisted pleasantly but firmly that he make quite sure Miss Chilson was not in. "'You are one of them surveys?' Uncomprehending, she shook her head. He made as though to shut the door, gently. Magnolia had not spent years in the South for nothing. Don't you shut that door on me. I want to see Hetty Chilson. The man recognized the tone of authority. What do you want? Magnolia recovered herself. After all, this was not the front door of a home, but of a house. Tell her Mrs. Gaylord Ravenel wants to speak to her. "'Tell her that I have one thousand dollars that belongs to her, and I want to give it to her.' Foolishly, she opened her bag 
and he saw the neat sheaf of bills. His eyes popped a little. Yes, ma'am, I'll tell her. Step in, ma'am. Magnolia entered Hetty Chilson's house. She was frightened. The trembling had taken hold of her knees again. But she clutched the handbag and looked about her, frankly curious. A dim hallway, richly carpeted, its walls covered with a red satin brocade. There were deep, soft-cushioned chairs and others of carved wood, high-backed. A lighted lamp on the stairway newel post cast a rosy glow over the whole. Huge Sevres vases stood in the stained-glass window niches. It was an entrance hall such as might have been seen in the Prairie Avenue or Michigan Avenue house of a new rich Chicago packer. The place was quiet. Now and then you heard a door shut. There was the scent of coffee in the air. No footfall on the soft carpet, even though the tread were heavy. Hetty Chilson descended the stairs. A massive, imposing figure in a black-and-white patterned foulard dress. She gave the effect of activity hampered by some physical impediment. Her descent was one of impatient deliberateness. One hand clung to the railing. She appeared a stout, middle-aged, well-to-do householder, summoned from some domestic task above stairs. She had aged much in the last ten years. Magnolia, startled, realized that the distortion of her stout figure was due to a tumor. "'How do you do?' said Hetty Chilson. Her keen eyes searched her visitor's face. The houseman hovered nearby in the dim hallway. "'Are you Mrs. Ravenel?' "'Yes.' "'What is it, please?' Magnolia felt like a schoolgirl interrogated by a stern but well-intentioned preceptress. Her cheeks were burning as she opened her handbag, took out the sheaf of hundred-dollar bills, tendered them to this woman. "'The money,' she stammered. "'The money you, you, you gave—the money you gave my husband. Here it is.' Hetty Chilson looked at the bills. "'I didn't give it to him. I loaned it to him. He said he'd pay it back, and I believe he will. Ravenel's got the name for being square.' Magnolia touched Hetty Chilson's hand with the folded bills, pressed them on her so that the hand opened automatically to take them. We don't want it. Don't want it? Well, what did he come asking me for it, then? I'm no bank that you can take money out and put money in. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He he didn't know. I can't. We don't. I, I, I can't take it. Hetty Chilson looked down at the bills. Her eyeglasses hung on the bodice of her dress, near the right shoulder, attached to a patent gold chain. This she pulled out now with a businesslike gesture and adjusted the eyeglasses to her nose. Oh, you're that kind, huh? She counted the bills once and then again, folded them. Does your husband know about this? Magnolia did not answer. She looked dignified and felt foolish. The very matter-of-factness of this world-hardened woman made this thing Magnolia had done seem overdramatic and silly. Hetty Chilson glanced over her shoulder to where the white-coated houseman stood. Mose, tell Jewel I want her. Tell her to bring her receipt book in a pan. Mose ran up the soft-carpeted stairs. 
you heard a deferential rap at an upper door. Voices. Hetty turned again to Magnolia. You'll want a receipt for this. Anyway, you'll have that to show him when he kicks up a fuss. She moved ponderously to the foot of the stairway, waited a moment there, looking up. Magnolia's eyes followed her gaze. Mose had vanished, evidently, down some rear passage and stairway, for he again appeared mysteriously at the back of the lower hall, though he had not descended the stairway up which he had gone a moment before. Down this stair came a straight, slim, grey-haired figure. Genteel was the word that popped into Magnolia's mind. A genteel figure in decent black silk, plain and good. It rustled discreetly. A fine, white turnover collar finished it at the throat, narrow cuffs at the wrist. It was difficult to see her face in the dim light. She paused a moment in the glow of the hall lamp as Hetty Chilson instructed her. A white face. No, not white. Ivory. Like something... like something dead. White hair still faintly streaked with black. In this clearer light, the woman seemed almost gaunt. The eyes were incredibly black in that ivory face, like dull coals, Magnolia thought, staring at her, fascinated. Something in her memory stirred at sight of this woman in the guard of a companion secretary, and with a face like burned-out ashes. Perhaps she had seen her with Hetty Chelson at the theatre or the races. She could not remember. "'Make out a receipt for one thousand dollars received from Mrs. Gaylord Ravenall. R-A-V-E-N-A-L. Yes, that's right. Here, I'll sign it.' Hetty Chilson penned her name swiftly as the woman held the book for her. She turned to Magnolia. "'Excuse me,' she said. "'I have to be at the bank at two. Jewel, give this receipt to Mrs. Ravenall, and come up as soon as you're through.' With a kind of ponderous dignity, this strange and terrible woman ascended her infamous stairway. Magnolia stood, watching her. Her plump, well-shaped hand clung to the railing. An old woman, her sins heavy upon her. She had somehow made Magnolia feel a fool. The companion tore the slip of paper from the booklet, advanced to Magnolia, and held it out to her. One thousand dollars, she said. Her voice was deep and rich and strange. Mrs. Gaylord Ravenall, correct? Magnolia put out her hand blindly. Unaccountably, she was trembling again. The slip of paper dropped from her hand. The woman uttered a little exclamation of apology. They both stooped to pick it up as the paper fluttered to the floor. They bumped awkwardly, actually laughed a little, ruefully, and straightening, looked at each other, smiling. And as Magnolia smiled, shyly, she saw the smile on the face of the woman freeze into a terrible contortion of horror. Horror stamped itself on her every feature. Her eyes were wild and enormous with it. Her mouth gaped with it. So the two stood staring at each other for one hideous moment. Then the woman turned blindly and vanished up the stairs like a black ghost. Magnolia stood staring after her. Then, with a little cry, she made as though to follow her up the stairway. 
Strangely, she cried, Julie, Julie, wait for me. Mose came swiftly forward. This way out, miss, he said deferentially. He held the street door open. Magnolia passed through it, down the steps of the brick house with the lion's couchant into the midday brightness of Clark Street. Suddenly, she was crying. Who so rarely wept? South Clark Street paid little attention to her, inured as it was to queer sights. And if a passer-by had stopped and said, What is it? Can I help you? She would have been at a loss to reply. Certainly she could not have said, I think I have just seen the ghost of a woman I knew when I was a little girl, a woman I first saw when I was swinging on the gate of our house at Thebes, and she went by in a long-tailed flounce black dress and a lace veil tied around her hat, and I last saw her. Oh, oh I can't be sure. I can't be sure. It might not. Clark Street, even if it had understood which is impossible, would not have been interested. And presently, as she walked along, she composed herself. She dabbed at her face with her handkerchief and pulled down her neat veil. She had still another task to perform. But the day seemed already so old. She was not sleepy, but her mind felt thick and slow. The events of the past night and of the morning did not stand out clearly. It was as if they had happened long ago. Perhaps she should eat something. She had had only that cup of coffee, had eaten almost nothing the night before. She had a little silver in her purse. She counted it as it lay next to the carefully folded thousand-dollar receipt signed in Hetty Chilson's firm, business-like hand. Twenty-five, thirty-five, forty, fifty, seventy-three cents. Ample. She stopped at a lunchroom on Harrison near Wabash, ate a sandwich, and drank two cups of coffee. She felt much better. On leaving, she caught a glimpse of herself in a wall mirror. A haggard woman with a skin blotched from tears, and a shiny nose, and with little untidy wisps of hair showing beneath her hat. Her shoes... She remembered having heard or read somewhere that neat shoes were the first requisite for an applicant seeking work. Furtively and childishly, she rubbed the toe of either shoe on the back of each stocking. She decided to go to one of the department store restrooms for women and there repair her toilette. Fields was the nicest, the Boston store the nearest. She went up State Street to Fields. The white marble mirrored room was full of women. It was warm and bright and smelled pleasantly of powder and soap and perfume. Magnolia took off her hat, bathed her face, tidied her hair, powdered. Now she felt less alien to these others about her. These comfortable, chattering, shopping women. Wives of husbands who worked in offices, who worked in shops, who worked in factories. She wondered about them. She was standing before a mirror adjusting her veil, and a woman was standing beside her, peering into the same glass, each seemingly oblivious of the other. I wonder, Magnolia thought fancifully, what she would say if I were to turn to her and tell her that I used to be a showboat actress.
and that my father was drowned in the Mississippi, and my mother, at sixty, runs a showboat all alone, and that my husband is a gambler, and we have no money, and that I have just come from the most notorious brothel in Chicago, where I returned a thousand dollars my husband had got there, and that I'm on my way to try to get work in a variety theater. She was smiling a little at this absurd thought. The other woman saw the smile, met it with a frozen stare of utter respectability, and walked away. There were few theatrical booking offices in Chicago, and these were of doubtful reputation. Magnolia knew nothing of their location, though she thought, vaguely, that they probably would be somewhere in the vicinity of Clark, Madison, and Randolph. She was wise enough in the ways of the theatre to realize that these shoddy agencies could do little for her. She had heard Ravenel speak of the variety houses and museums on State Street and Clark and Madison. The word vaudeville was just coming into use. In company with her husband, she had even visited Cole and Middleton's museum, that smoke-filled, comfortable, shabby variety house on Clark, where the admission was ten cents. It had been during that first Chicago trip, before Kim's birth. Women seldom were seen in the audience, but Ravenel, for some reason, had wanted her to get a glimpse of this form of theatrical entertainment. Here Weber and Field had played for fifteen dollars a week. Here you saw the funny Irishman, Eddie Foy, and May Howard had sung and danced. They'll probably build big expensive theatres someday for variety shows, Ravenel had predicted. The performance was, Magnolia thought, much like that given as the concert after the evening's bill on the cotton blossom. A whole evening of that, she said. Years later, the Masonic temple roof was opened for vaudeville. There! Ravenel had triumphantly exclaimed, What did I tell you? Some of those people get three or four hundred a week, and even more. Here, the juggling Auguste family threw plates and lighted lamps and tables and chairs, and ended by keeping aloft a whole dinner service and parlor suite, with lamps, soup tureens, and plush chairs passing each other affably in midair without mishap. Jessie Bartlett Davis sang sentimentally, "'True love, that's the simple charm that opens every woman's heart.'" At the other end of the scale were the all-night restaurants with a stage at the rear where the waiters did an occasional song and dance, or where some amateur tried to prove his talent. Between these were two or three variety shows of decent enough reputation, though frequented by the sporting world of Chicago. Chief of these was Jopper's Varieties, a basement theatre on Wabash supposed to be copied after the Criterion in London. There was a restaurant on the ground floor. A flight of marble steps led down to the underground auditorium. Here new acts were sometimes tried out. Lillian Russell, it was said, had got her first hearing at Jopper's. For some reason, Magnolia had her mind fixed on this place. She made straight for it, probably as unbusinesslike a performer as ever presented herself for a hearing. It was now well on toward mid-afternoon. 
Already the early December dusk was gathering, aided by the Chicago smoke and the lake fog. Her fright at Hetty Chilson's door was as nothing compared to the sickening fear that filled her now. She was physically and nervously exhausted. The false energy of the morning had vanished. She tried to goad herself into fresh courage by thoughts of Kim at the convent, of Parthy's impending visitation. As she approached the place on Wabash, she resolved not to pass it, weakly. If she passed it but once, she never would have the bravery to turn and go in. She and Ravenel had driven by many times on their way to the south side races. It was in this block. It was four doors away. It was here. She wheeled stiffly like a soldier and went in. The restaurant was dark and deserted. One dim light showed at the far end. The tablecloths were white patches in the grayness, but a yellow path of light flowed up the stairway that led to the basement, and she heard the sound of a piano. She descended the swimming marble steps, aware of the most alarming sensation in her legs, rather of no sensation in them. It was as though no solid structure of bone and flesh and muscle lay in the region between her faltering feet and her pounding heart. There was a red-carpeted foyer, a little ticket window. The doors of the auditorium stood open. She put out a hand, blindly, to steady herself against the door jamb. She looked into the theatre, the badly lighted, empty theatre, with its rows and rows of vacant seats, its stage at the far end, the curtain half-raised, the set a crudely painted interior. And as she looked, there came over her, flowed over her, like balm, a feeling of security, of peace, of homecoming. Here were accustomed surroundings. Here were the very sights and smells and sounds she knew best. Those men with their hats on the backs of their heads and their cigars waggling comfortably and their feet on the chair in front of them might have been Schultze, Frank, Ralph, Paul Means. Evidently, a song was being tried out in rehearsal. The man at the piano was hammering it and speaking the words in a voice as hoarse and unmusical as a boat whistle coming through the fog. It was a plantation song, full of my babies and choo-choos and alabams. Magnolia waited quietly until he had come to a full stop. A thin, pale young man in a striped shirt and a surprising grey derby, who had been sitting with his wooden kitchen chair tipped up against the proscenium, now brought his chair down on all fours. "'You was with the Haverleys, you say?' "'I certainly was. Ask Jim. Ask Sam. Ask anybody. "'Well, go back to him, is what I say. "'If you ever was more than a singing waiter, then I'm new to the show business.' "'He took his coat from where it lay on top of the piano. "'That's all for today, ain't it, Joe?' "'He addressed a large huddle whose thick shoulders and round head "'could just be seen above the back of a second-row center seat.' The fat huddle rose and stretched and yawned and grunted an affirmative. Magnolia came swiftly down the aisle. She looked up at the thin young man. He stared at her across the footlight gutter. 
Will you let me try some songs? Who are you? demanded the young man. My name is Magnolia Ravenel. <laughs> Never heard of it. What do you do? I sing. I sing plantation songs with the banjo. All right, said the thin young man resignedly. Get your banjo and sing us one. I, I haven't got one. Haven't got one what? One, uh, a banjo. Well, you said you... Didn't you just say you sang plantation songs with a banjo? I, I haven't got it with me. Is, isn't there one? Actually, until this moment, she had not given the banjo a thought. She looked about her in the orchestra pit. Well, for God's sakes, said the Grey Derby. The hoarse-voiced singer who had just met with Rebuff and who was shrugging himself into a shabby overcoat now showed himself a knight. He took an instrument case from the piano top. Here, he said, take mine, sister. Magnolia looked to left, to right. There, the fat man in the second row jerked a thumb toward the right stage box, back of which was the stage door. Magnolia passed swiftly up the aisle, was on the stage. She was quite at ease, relaxed, at home. She seated herself in one of the deal chairs and crossed her knees. Take your hat off, commanded the pasty young man. She removed her veil and hat. A sallow, big-eyed young woman, too thin, in a well-made suit and a modish, rather crumpled shirtwaist, and nothing of the look of the stage about her. She thumbed the instrument again. She remembered something dimly, dimly, far, far back, far back, and yet very recent, this morning. Don't smile too often, but if you ever want anything... She smiled. The thin young man did not appear overwhelmed. She threw back her head then as Joe had taught her, half-closed her eyes, tapped time with the right foot smartly. Imitative in this, she managed, too, to get into her voice that soft and husky quality which for years she had heard on riverboats, bayous, landings. I got a wings, you got a wings, all God's chillin' got a wings. Sing another, said the old young man. She sang the one she had always liked best. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. Husky, mournful, melodious voice, tapping foot, rolling eye. Silence. What kind of a song do you call that? inquired the Grey Derby. Why, it's a plantation melody. They sing them in the South. Sounds like a church hymn to me. The young man appeared a trifle embarrassed, which made him look all the younger. Years later in New York, Kim was to know him as one of the most powerful theatrical producers of his day. And he was to say to Kim, Ravenel, hmm? Why, say, I knew your mother when she was better looking than you'll ever be. And smart. Say, she tried to sell me a plantation song turned down in joppers in the old days, long before your time. I thought they were hymns and wouldn't touch them. 
Seems they're hot stuff now. <laughs> Spirituals, they call them. You hear them in every show on Broadway. It's fact. Gotta go to church to get away from them. <laughs> well, live and learn's what I say. It was through this shrewd, tough, stage-wise boy that Magnolia had her chance. He did not understand or like her folk songs then, but he did recognize the quality she possessed. And it was due to this precociousness in him that Magnolia, a little more than a year later, was singing American plantation songs in the Masonic Roof Bell, her name on the program with those of Sissy Loftus and Marshall Wilder and the four Coens. But now she stood up, the scarlet receding from her face, leaving it paler than before. Silently, she handed the husky singer his banjo, tried to murmur a word of thanks, choked. She put on her hat, adjusted her veil. Hey, here, wait a minute, sister. No offense. I, I, your voice sounds... Uh, ain't that the truth, Joe? Actually distressed, he appealed again to his unloquacious ally in the third row. Sure does, agreed Joe. The unfortunate, hoarse-voiced man who had loaned her the banjo now departed. He seemed to bear no rancor. Magnolia, seeing this, tried again to smile on the theory that if he could be game, then so too could she. And this time, it was the real Magnolia Ravenel smile, of which the newspapers made much in the years to come. The ravishing Ravenel smile, they said someone having considered that alliterative phrase rather neat. Seeing it now, the young showman exclaimed, without too much elegance, Oh, look at that, Joe! Then to Magnolia, Listen, sister, you won't get far with those. Your songs are too much like church tunes, see? They're for a funeral, not a theater. And that's a fact. But I like the way you got of singing them. How about singing me a song like, you know, Hello, My Baby, or something like that? Well, uh, I don't know any. These are the only songs I know. Well, for... Well, listen, you learn some real songs and come back, see, in a week. Here, try these over at home, see? He selected some song sheets from the accommodating piano top. She took them numbly. She was again in the cold, moist winter street. Quite dark now. She walked over to State Street and took a northbound car. The door of their room on the third floor was locked, and when she had opened it, she felt that the room was empty. Not empty. Not empty merely. Deserted. Before she had lighted the gas jet, she had an icy feeling of desolation of impending and piled-up tragedy at the close of a day that already toppled with it. Her gaze went straight to the dresser. An envelope was there, her name on it in Ravenel's neat, delicate hand. Magnolia, darling, I'm going away for a few weeks. Return when your mother is gone, or send for you. Six hundred dollars for you on the shelf under the clock. Kim, convent, enough, weeks, darling, love, best, always. She never saw him again. She must have been a little lightheaded by this time, 
for certainly no deserted wife in her right senses would have followed the course that Magnolia Ravenel now took. She read the note again, her lips forming some of the words aloud. She walked to the little painted shelf over the washstand. Six hundred. That was right. Six hundred. Perhaps this really belonged to that woman, too. She couldn't go there again. Even if it did, she couldn't go there again. She left the room, the gas flaring. She hurried down Clark Street, going a few blocks south, into one of the pawn shops. That was nothing new. The man actually greeted her by name. Good evening, Mrs. Ravenall. And what can I do for you? A banjo. What? I want to buy a banjo. She bargained for it shrewdly. When she tendered a hundred-dollar bill in payment, the man's face fell. Oh, now, Mrs. Ravenall, I gave you that special price because I'll go somewhere else. She got it, hurried back with it, into her room again. She had not even locked the door. Five of the six one-hundred-dollar bills lay as she had tossed them on the dresser. A little crazy, certainly. Years, years afterward, she actually could relate the fantastic demoniac events of this day that had begun at four in the morning and ended almost twenty hours later. It made a very good story. Dramatic, humorous, tragic. Kim's crowd thought it was wonderful. She took off her veil and hat and jacket. Her black hair lay in loose, limp, ugly loops about her face. She opened one of the sheets of music and propped it up against the center section of the old-fashioned dresser. She crossed her knees, cradled the banjo. One foot tapped the time rhythmically. An hour. Two hours. A knock at the door. The landlady, twelve hours fustier than she had been that morning. It ain't me, Miss Ravenall, but downstairs says she can't sleep for the noise. She's that sickly one. She says she pounded, but you didn't... I'll stop. I, I, I didn't hear her. I'm so sorry. Oh, for me, you could go on all night. The landlady leaned bulkily and sociably against the door. I'm crazy about music. I never knew you was musical. Oh, yes, said Magnolia. Very. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the eighth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. Other readings include Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.